Eric, how's it going? Pretty good, Leo. How are you doing? Good. How's your summer been? Oh, it's been way busier than I ever thought it would be. Yeah, I know what you mean. So recently you had organized a baseball game for developers in the Lansing area, right? Correct. Yep. That's in addition to all of the other regular event planning that I do week to week. So what other event planning? You got like your demo night. What what am I missing? A lot of the tech meetups. I mean, I don't organize all of them, but I'm trying to bring all of the organizers together so that there's one place where we can all meet and find out how to get more people engaged in the tech community in Lansing. Um, That's all at Lansing Codes. You organize the organizers, right? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't always feel like it. Yeah. And like as a self-employed person, the benefit of doing like organizing events and building communities is not only can you get feedback on your own work and just get out of the house a little bit, but also, you know, you learn things from others. I think one of the problems with doing any of this like productivity stuff is we always tend to focus on ourselves. But I think part of productivity is also like in a group of people. It's a so there's a social aspect to it. And I think like communities and events are a great way to do that. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there's so many unique problems and not problems, but just challenges to face when you start adding in even one other person to any kind of a like work effort or gathering or anything like that. Yeah, I agree. So this year I've been doing quite a bit of conference hopping. So one of my favorite conferences this year was Piers. And luckily I met Jess, the organizer at Piers, and she is with us today to talk a little bit about how she goes about organizing and event planning and building communities. Jess, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Leo. Thanks for having me. Go ahead and introduce yourself and Piers and what you do. Sure. My name is Jessica D'Amico. I started Peers Conference back in 2013. There was an opportunity within some CMS communities that I'm part of to start a new event. And it was a time within communities, sort of in a LAMP CMS sphere, where there were different tools coming about. And it seemed like an opportunity where we could start an event that was a little bit more focused on people and a little bit less focused on tools and the ideas of making great things on the web and bringing people together. So that's kind of how Peers came about. We just had our seventh event this past April in New Orleans. So we've been in some great cities. And uh, what I love about Peers is that we do development talks, we do business talks, we focus a lot on business and bringing people together who are in the same place in our industry, building software, making websites, creating digital experiences and try to share the challenges of what that feels like and how we can all do it better together and learn from each other. Yeah. And I like that you've moved like from city to city. So there's like a new experience every time. That's a terrible idea. Never do that. (laughs) Oh, really? I thought it would improve accessibility for people who don't necessarily have the funds to fly to any such venue over the course of the year. It sure does. And one of the fun things about being an organizer is when you go to a different city each time or no matter where you throw an event, people will come up to you throughout the course of the event and tell you how really the best place for your event is their hometown (laughs) next year and that you should definitely do it there. So that's always fun because, you know, different people live different places. There aren't always great venues and hotels where everyone lives, but um, that's a fun piece of the job. Right. So uh, 2020, Piers in Lansing, Michigan. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, Eric. I can't make any promises at this time. (laughs) But yeah, early on, you know, in terms of building a community, but also recognizing that I was sort of lucky to be part of a community in the early stages of Piers and, and be trying to grow and expand that community and recognize that People are just as excited about seeing each other and learning from each other. And they frequently use events. And then as we've grown, I think small companies, as they get a little bit bigger, also use events as a chance to bring their people together if they are distributed or working with remote teams. And so events kind of sometimes represent an opportunity for developers and people within the community to sort of have a vacation or have social gatherings, either tacked on to the conference or as part of the conference. And then teams use it as a way to bring people in and get everybody in the same room and do company retreats. So that was just 
a piece that really appealed to me in the sense of um, trying to do different cities and give our audience something to look forward to. Yeah, and Pierce is a very people-oriented conference. That's part of why I like it. It's not like, I mean, there's a couple of workshops, but typically it's very oriented on people and organizations and like your company and morale and things like that, which I really enjoy. Do you know approximately how many people attend Pierce? Sure, it does vary. So, you know, our sweet spot, I'm always trying to hit about 200 attendees. That doesn't always happen. We were very small this past year, much closer to about, I think, 60 people. We've been up around 150 people. So again, it kind of ranges year to year. And then also sometimes I make the joke that doing an annual event is kind of like getting married each year and asking your family to keep showing up. (laughs) Life gets in the way for people. And when you are part of a community that is big, but not huge, you have to realize that people want to come, but they can't always make it. And so we, we kind of see different shifts from year to year. What's the benefit to you for organizing the community? What would be the benefit to the organizer to organize an event? There are multiple benefits. For me, I'm an extremely extroverted person and very outgoing. And I'm in different communities where that can sometimes stand out. You know, we have sometimes introverted developer stereotype or personality type sometimes. That's one of the things that I found like startling is like certain entrepreneurial conferences that I'll go to versus the developer conferences I go to. Like the networking is can be much more of a challenge for the developer conferences just because the audience tends to be slightly more introverted. Absolutely. And so for me, it's just very natural to be extroverted and talk to people. And it seemed like something that I would be able to do when I kind of stepped up in 2013 and thought about starting this event out of coming out of other events that I had been to in the past and and the idea of tinkering with it and maybe making something that was a little bit different that focused on some things that were important to me. I would say the benefits for an organizer, though, are really vast in that you can build a great network of people. And that goes beyond just knowing people when you are looking to find a solution, but more along the lines for me, again, what makes me happy is the ability to connect people. And so just understanding who is in your community, if there are companies looking to hire, if there are people who need to find extra work, people who sometimes can mutually benefit each other based on perspective or shared experience. There's just so many great things to me that happen when you put people in the same room. Besides the organizer, what are some of the uh, benefits for self-starters to build a community like meetup or event, whether it's paid or free or otherwise? Sure. I think it sort of depends on what your goals are and maybe Different people will go into either starting a community or starting a meetup, perhaps with different goals, whether or not you want to establish yourself within a space or try to create sort of an expert. I'm not sure what the right word I'm looking for is, but in other words, if you're trying to develop expertise within a space, thought leadership. I kind of hate to say thought leadership, but uh, I think there's also real leadership that happens when you stand up in front of people or teach what you've learned, which I think a lot of developer meetups especially are sharing code, sharing ideas, sharing best practices and so forth. So from the meetup perspective, I think you can have that piece of it. From an event perspective, there's opportunities if you're interested, if you, you know, if organization comes naturally to you, if you like to travel, if you want to try to do things in different cities, if you also want to go beyond your sphere, perhaps, and try to bring in different groups of people to talk to an audience. All of those things can be benefits. What do you think are some things you've noticed that have indicated to you how healthy that, for instance, the Pierce community is? I tell everyone that I approach to speak to Pierce that we have absolutely the best community, and I believe it with all my heart. I think that not only is the Pierce community full of hardworking people who care tremendously about the products and the solutions and the businesses that they build. I see how much they care about each other. 
And whether that looks like, again, sharing learning or hopping on Slack and sharing code or answering questions or being able to serve as a reference point or a connection. From the very beginning, people have always gone home from peers and done business together. They sort of follow up with each other and stay in touch. They build apps together. And that connection and those people who care about each other and care about our speakers and are generous with their time and their information is really special. I think our speakers feel it. They follow up with me and let me know that they had a great time. We tend to ask them to stay for the whole conference and be involved and get to know members of our community. And that feels different on both sides, I think, as well. Our audience doesn't love it when speakers appear on our stage and then kind of dash off to their next great thing. But the flip side is that our speakers always tell me later how much they enjoyed getting to know members of the community and expanding their own business network and hearing what people in our community are doing or watching as their businesses scale. I like to think that there's potential for investment and what you can receive on both ends of that equation. How do you recruit speakers for your events? Great question. I try to do it multiple ways, mostly by paying attention online to who's talking about what. And Twitter is a great source of that for me. Also paying attention to other events that I feel are either similar or in line with what we're trying to achieve at peers or also just in line with topics we're trying to cover and see who's doing what. We have in the past done larger call for proposed CFP call for proposal reviews and had interesting blind processes for that, which has been great. Sometimes it's just invite only based on a list that I'm always gathering of targets that I think would be great for our community. So it's a little bit of a complicated approach. Okay. So you kind of use different sources for that. How do you go about getting like sponsors or volunteers or backers? That's mostly just outreach and building relationships and asking for it. So I think you might remember how we have this ambassador approach where we try to partner with someone on the ground in our community and we make them a city ambassador or a food ambassador. Yeah, that's I really like that because then part of the traveling thing is like you get somebody who's familiar with the local area. Sure. It makes it welcoming. Yeah, I think also engineers, developers, business owners are smart. And they tend to be a savvy, do-it-yourself audience. So satisfying part of that piece of the community that's kind of like, oh, I want to find out everything about this location, or I want to have a great experience, or I'm really interested in food, or I'm good at doing research, so I'm already trying to do my homework on this location. So working along those lines to scratch that itch a little bit and provide great food or great experiences or just Understand also that I think a great experience can come from working with small business owners and everyone at Peers, by and large, is a small business owner in one way or another. So it makes sense to me to champion small businesses on the ground where we are. And we always do that. We do that with coffee. We do that with snacks. We try to do that with the food we bring in. Sometimes we do it with speakers. It pays dividends. Have you thought much about how you identify some of the qualities that make like a good local ambassador, like someone who... They have to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) Alive. Yeah, we don't want to run into that again. (laughs) They have to be willing to talk to me. I've had some really great experience over the years with our ambassadors. They have been so generous, again, with their time and we have fun and do, you know, we go grocery shopping together to buy snacks for our speakers and they take me to spots in town that they want me to try where I can get the best sandwich or the best thing, or we kind of geek out about food. And I've been so, so lucky over the years. And again, it's because our community is amazing. I love that portion, the conversation and geeking out about all of the different qualities of an area. My struggle is when it comes time to actually ask for money or sponsorship or ask someone to commit some time. That's when I start getting really nervous. It's important to try, if you can, to depersonalize it a little bit in the context that this is tricky too, right? Because you're not the only one. And so that is both helpful in saying, oh, I'm not the only one asking for money. Great. 
But then the flip side is, oh, I'm not the only one asking for money, so I've got to be the best one. I think like everything else, sometimes in life, the more professional you can be about it, the more you can make a use case for why supporting a community or showing up at an event is good for business is something that's going to help your cause. I talk about this a lot, usually on stage at the beginning of Peers, how much I appreciate our partners. I do call them partners because I really believe that they are partners in what we are trying to achieve in terms of building community. We are not an easy sell. We don't let our speakers come in and give them a free talk. We don't give them access to our audience list. We don't sell the members of our community the way that a lot of events do. And that sounds terrible, but it has just been a reality that I've been made aware of the longer I've been involved with different kinds of events. And so I tried to explain to our audience that partnership to me is doubly meaningful because what it means when someone steps up to become a partner of peers is that they're a partner of this community and they want to see this community succeed and grow. They want to see the businesses within it scale and do well and be support for the people who run them and work inside them. And we're trying to push that message rather than be in a booth and throw your wares at our audience. That's that's not our thing. But actually, that doesn't sound bad at all. It sounds really respectful. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're being very selfless and humble when you're asking. I think it's selfish from my perspective too, in the sense of I started out in this field as a web generalist, and I still consider myself a developer, even though my path has twisted and turned along the way. And I think that no one wants to go home from an event and get an email saying, it was so great to see you there from XYZ company. And why don't you fill out this survey about our new product? I don't think that feels good to me. I don't think it feels good to our audience. And What's great about peers is that if you want to come and talk about your business and talk about products or solutions you're building that affect our community, there are so many opportunities to make connections within the community to do so. And that feels better, more organic, and ultimately much more successful to me as a way of promoting a product or promoting a brand or promoting a business because you've actually made a human connection. I think we kind of discussed this at Piers actually, but like what has been the best way to start something, a new event and do it in a cheap and quick way? And then being able to like reach out and build that audience when you first start out. Does that make sense? It does make sense. You know, it's always a challenge that idea of if you build it, they will come. I think right now we're feeling a little bit of event fatigue. There have been many, many events started seemingly in the past five years. I don't know if that's just indicative of the specificity of our industry. And so as languages and approaches pop up, there are just more and more specific tech events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Ideally, just like software or any kind of product, if you can get sort of an MVP and float the idea of who your audience might be and get some buy-in in terms of attendance, my feeling is always start small set a really reasonable goal. You know, can you put 30 people in a room? Could you put 50 people in a room? Could it be on a Saturday if your community supports something that needs to be outside of work hours? Could you partner with a local business that has a conference room and get space for free in exchange for thanking them profusely for the use of that conference Mm -hmm. room? You know, ways to kind of save money while you're testing your audience. And that's important because the challenge isn't always that first small event. Actually, those are usually pretty easy to put together. The challenge is how do you do your second and third event where you get up to 100 people and you're selling tickets and you get the commitment of people to buy and stay? Yeah, that becomes the real challenge is once I have to put their credit card number in, then it's like, oh, I don't know about this. The other problem that I've had is, especially with free events, is people not showing up, like basically RSVPing and not showing up. And that's like a whole other problem. Yeah, that's a whole other issue that I think, again, we see the benefits of software and tools like Meetup. And then as quickly as we have them and desire them, we kind of throw them aside and think, oh, I don't really need to do this, (laughs) you know? 
it's very, very easy to click accept. It's very, very easy to say yes to everything because it's not face to face. Exactly. It's, it's digital. You won't, you won't be hurting someone's feelings. And then it's just a checkbox. Things happen in life where you get tired at the end of that day and you decide you can no longer make it. So that's a challenge. We talk about this. I volunteer with local organizations and DC Women Who Code and things like that. And there's always sometimes talk about, you know, should you charge $5 for an event just to have a local commitment? Is it better to have 20 or even 10 engaged people in the room mm-hmm. than it is to have 100 if 75% are no-shows? Right. Or they're just there for the free pizza. Sure. And I think there's room for that across the board or other ways to gauge interest. Certainly, if you're allowing your community as to be part of a meetup that, that tests the waters on talks and allows people to present and lets people find their feet in terms of sharing, I think you're going to have much better engagement, much better attendance numbers if people feel that they're contributing value to the group and that their ideas are welcome that's something that they're probably going to prioritize if they feel like they're getting something good out of it. And it's rarely the free pizza. (laughs) (laughs) So were there some specific things that you had in mind when you mentioned finding ways to get them to contribute to the group? So I think if we're talking from a smaller meetup scale, it's sourcing your audience for ideas and contributions because that tends to get people excited and maybe making sure that you are I'm doing air quotes, you know, following up and keeping in touch with people and, and just doing a lot of outreach where you're asking, what are you working on? Are there ways we could work this in? Sort of right around the time that I started Peers or maybe even a little before it, I was working, doing events with our local expression engine meetup. And so trying to do outreach within the people in that community to say, you know, what are ways we can put meetups together tied to this software that we all use? Could we do a site review where we break down how a site was built and how we could rebuild it better? Or could we find people who are doing interesting new things and they want to talk about them? Sometimes people just need a little prodding. Saying those sorts of things made me think of something that I don't know if this is uh, for sure going to consistently help with um, getting people to contribute to a group when they're there. But something that has stood out to me about a couple of the events that I've been to this year have been when the speaker is actually sitting down and at the same level as everyone else in the audience. It's had this uh, like strange, subtle feel of like a fireside chat, and everyone has just kind of felt more talkative and comfortable just participating in a conversation instead of listening to someone else talk in front of them or talk at them. That's really interesting. You know, there's a power dynamic at play. There's something that you can sort of understand when you're either on a stage or what, even when there's just something simple like a podium, it sort of transfers expertise in a way that sitting in a circle doesn't. So I think those deliberate kinds of choices about how you bring people to the group, how they treat the group when they are presenting are all extremely important. Again, I think sometimes you can put together groups where the focus is not on a single speaker, but more on the group dynamic. And so maybe it's quarterly, especially if you're doing meetups that are tied to business owners, tied to freelancers or armies of one or small companies, you know, quarterly, let's bring everybody together and let's talk about the challenges we're facing with growth. Do you have remote employees and are you dealing with interstate tax and health and other kinds of issues that are challenges for every small business seemingly on the planet? Are you having a really hard time sourcing new hires or vendors or freelancers, people that you want to put together? I think there's lots of other fun ways to also connect people. You could do sort of speed dating or say, would you be interested in being part of a kind of meet and greet for hiring or making connections of complementary skill sets if we did that, say, twice a year. I think there are people who can find their needs being met in a larger group that maybe they can't come monthly, but they would be willing to come two or three times a year. And something I'm picking up on, too, as we talk about this is a variety. I'm trying different things and then eventually finding out what happens when you have one format of event versus a different kind. Yeah, that's really helpful, too. And I struggle with that sometimes in the sense of a single track event when you're doing a larger conference versus a multi-track event and 
how do you meet the needs of people whose skill sets are at different levels? How do you satisfy you know, wider swaths of your audience versus what does it feel like when the entire group sits in a room and experiences a talk together and how that communal shared experience in the moment can actually be so strong and so effective. Thanks for all those tips. We already talked a little bit about free versus asking people to put in a little bit of money. Do you have other ideas for making events more accessible to a wider audience? I think the biggest thing is that we all take for granted (laughs) that when we speak, people listen. But the flip side is we stop listening to others very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Again, I've stumbled over the years with repeating my message enough and making sure that I'm getting it out enough, imagining that people are actually listening when they're not. And so in terms of accessible events, beyond sort of, I'm going to take the physical accessibility out of the way. So if you say, okay, I'm going to have a physically accessible venue. I'm going to be in a place that people can get to easily. I'm going to be in a place that's comfortable for a variety of people and then take it into the sense of how can I reach broader or different audiences? Again, for me, that ties to paying attention, being aware of communities you might not have been aware of, podcasts, networking groups, even just small groups that are talking on Twitter or sometimes doing little tweet chats or things like that. And just reaching out to those people and saying, hey, you might not know we exist. We're over here. Can you help share our message? Can you help amplify what we're trying to do by retweeting us once in a while or by sharing us with your group? I know for the local tech communities, we always try to reach out to the leadership when we go to a new city, offer discounts to groups that may be underrepresented in tech and also in the business world and ask them if they have people that couldn't ordinarily come to peers, but they think would be a great fit. Let's throw some free tickets their way. Let's give them some discounts. So trying to get more people in the room, sometimes you have to be creative. I really like that. Going back to like feeling selfish, like I always feel like, hey, could you retweet this? Could you share this online for me? I always feel a bit guilty with that. And I think, like you said, depersonalization helps. Depersonalization helps, but also I want to say to communities that may not be feeling like they're seen, I'm seeing you and I want you to be a peers because I think everybody should be a peers because I think our community is the bestest and our speakers are fantastic. But nothing would make me happier than having a more diverse group of people in our audience. So if I can do my part to reach out to the leaders of groups and say, I'm aware of your group and I would love to have you here. Are there ways we can work together to make it happen? Are there ways I can help you bring people? Are there ways you can help me spread you know, awareness? I think that's okay. Yeah. So I'm in total agreement. I really appreciate all of those answers. That's something that I think about a lot. Having conversations with people is spot on and it's It's almost frustrating how many times I have to tell myself that. And eventually one of these days it's going to sink in. Also, we have to learn not to be afraid to have those conversations in public. It's traditionally in my nature to sort of back channel some of them and reach out privately. And then maybe you aren't seen doing that work. And it's far less important to me to be seen doing the work than it is just for people to know my intentions or that I I want to be as inclusive as possible. So I would say, don't hesitate to put things out on Twitter. Don't hesitate to go with public messages in addition to the private emails or the private DMs you might send to say, how can we forge these connections? Because then sometimes things happen that you don't expect. Maybe there is another person paying attention who comes to you online or offline and says, I saw that you were trying to make this connection and there's another group you should know about or there's someone I think would be good for you. Or if you're willing to put things out in public about your intent and your efforts, sometimes people come to you privately and say, we have a colleague who would love to come to this event, but they can't afford it this year. Would you consider comping them a ticket? I think they could find tremendous value. And that to me is always, again, very flattering. The idea that someone would take the time and think that there's value and benefits in peers. And so it makes me thrilled to give tickets away. 
I like that you mentioned personalized emails. Um, I feel like in this day and age, like we use a lot of email newsletters and we try to automate stuff, but I've found that like personalized emails are really effective reaching out to people and personalizing it and actually like saying something about that person as opposed to just mass emailing and having a template for the first name and last name, like personalized email makes a difference to people. I believe in that a hundred million percent. That's something that really resonates with me. I try to do a lot of that. I try to reach out to people a lot and just tell them that I'm thinking about them. But I think in the context of events, when especially with speakers, good speakers know they're good speakers and they get a lot of requests. And two things that I always try to do when I'm reaching out to a new speaker who I desperately want to bring to my audience is help them understand that I value their time, but I know who they are and I've done my homework and the reasons that they would be a good fit, but also about our community and that we as a group are different and welcoming and that's why they should speak again so much more so. So I would say absolutely personal emails. I don't think there's a person on the planet that isn't, or maybe there are, but Many, many people are happy to receive something that shows that the sender took a little bit of time to think about them. Yeah, I agree completely. And we've kind of lost that art in the last, you know, 10 years or so. It's important. People want to think that they have an impact on others. And then that's a way to verify that. It builds strong connections. So, what are some of the biggest challenges? you've faced and you feel like a lot of organizers face when they're starting something? Oh, tons. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, if there's opportunities to do your first event locally, that's probably a smart decision. So it sounds to me like you're saying, like, keep it small, keep it cheap uh, when you first start off. It's very clear when an event is trying to make a lot of money. Yes, There aren't details that are attended to. Sometimes little things like water are missing, little necessities here and there. So taking care in the details of your event will resonate with your attendees. And it doesn't have to be lavish and it doesn't have to be huge. You could have a very simple event that you charged $20 in tickets in your town and got somebody to throw in pizza or tacos and got the space for free. But if you just paid attention to the details and made people feel welcome and also made them feel like you were trying to give them something of value and you're approaching it from an authentic and genuine place, I think that will resonate with an audience. People know when they're being sold. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Sometimes that's Big conferences, they actually don't know that the keynotes are all sold. Sorry to break it to you, listeners. A lot of keynotes are sold. (laughs) It's disappointing to me and you. So, you know, but people are smart, especially people who do what we do. Yeah, I've been to one conference. Actually, they kind of travel around, but like one of the problems I run into, and this is what I like about peers and like microconf and other ones, but So these conferences, it's basically just people go there because their employers pay them to go there and it's a day off of work. And like, that's the most disappointing conference for me is when there's nobody there who wants to be there and actually feels like they're getting something out of it. It's just, you know, the company is basically paying for it and everybody that speaks at it is basically not really being helpful, but more selling their product, like you said. And it feels almost like boilerplate, like, okay, we have this talk, then this talk, then this talk. And it's like, but there's no real substance there. And I feel like those conferences, as somebody who's self-employed, is just like a complete waste of time. Like you said, you have to be welcoming and you have to actually provide value to the attendees rather than just being like, you know, letting speakers talk about stuff that nobody cares about. That touches on a really important point for me personally with peers and part of the motivation for starting it, but also for providing value is that I was coming to the table as a self-employed person. And I was coming to the table as a business owner who was aware that my time away from my business was a double loss in attending an event. Exactly. Because I wasn't doing any work 
and I was spending a lot of money to attend event. And so I've always approached my events from that perspective. I feel very compelled to provide value to my audience. I want them to go home having learned something. And as the years have gone by, that has become a little bit more blurry because I believe so strongly that there are business lessons and there are business boons and tremendous value in the people we meet and the connections we make. So sometimes to me, providing that value doesn't always take the form of a code workshop or learning about new software. Sometimes I'm hoping people can understand that there is tremendous value in being able to sit down with someone whose company looked like what your company looked like two to three years ago. And now it looks like something different. And hearing how they dealt with that transition and what it can mean for you. How do you handle things when they go wrong, like last minute cancellation or like flight delays or technical mishaps? I know like Pierce doesn't do video recordings, but I've definitely run into issues where like video recording doesn't go wrong for some of my meetups. How do you handle some of that stuff? Generally with a lot of gin. I was going to say coffee, but yeah, gin would be better, I guess. Yeah. I've both been tremendously lucky. And then also things go wrong and you have to have a plan. And then also I've got gotten some great advice along the way. So I'll sort of tackle that in three ways. I have to say when I first launched Peers, I felt so tremendously lucky because I had made some great connections in our industry who were tremendously, tremendously helpful. And I had some very wonderful moments where sometimes you know you're on the right track because someone comes into your life with a piece of advice or a different perspective and it helps you understand that there's sort of reasoning behind the larger madness. One person for me was Alan Branch from Less Everything who threw with his business partner at the time, uh, Stephen Lesconf that I attended back in 2012, I want to say. And I was telling Alan that I was going to be doing this new event and he gave me all this really great advice that I still think about and am grateful for to this day. So things that I hadn't thought about when you throw an event and there's many people and there's many working pieces, small caveat to say, if you do the kind of event where you pick a venue that provides everything there's a lot of logistics that goes away. And so for some people, they'll always choose to do that type of event. They'll want to do it in a hotel because the hotel will have catering and the hotel will have video services and the hotel will have coffee. You pay a lot more for that kind of thing. And sometimes the venues can be uninspired. But what you get in exchange is convenience for your attendees who go downstairs from their room to the conference. And there's always coffee there because it's the hotel's job to do that well. And there's always snacks or what have you because you've paid for them in advance. So lots of benefits to doing those kinds of venues. I've always tried to go the other direction and have more creative, hands-on, again, working with small business. I think my audience wants to drink coffee from a local shop Mm -hmm. and champion a small business whenever we can, then do the hotel thing. But um, you have to recognize the choices you make and how sometimes it makes things easier, sometimes it makes things harder. Alan gave me lots of great advice about what to do when a speaker doesn't show up at the last minute or when a speaker suddenly has uh, a case of nerves or just some difficulty getting through their talk and needs some help from you. So things like maybe having a backup speaker in the can or having someone in your audience that is smart and fun and can present at a moment's notice. If you've got an audience member like that, cherish them <laughs> and do everything you can to support them. That happened to me my first my first time out. It was sort of like Alan said, all these things will happen. And then a month later, all those things happened. And I was like, gosh, thanks, Alan. I was mentally prepared for right. this because you told me. <laughs> so sometimes forewarned is forearmed. And I have found it that I just try to lay out a little logistics plan, not only of being extraordinarily planned with the scheduling down to the minute of this is when this vendor arrives and this is when this person arrives and this is when this will happen. Because I think when you lay out a fairly stringent schedule, it actually then frees you for wiggle room. If you know what is supposed to happen when, you can actually make more adjustments. 
I have gotten in trouble sometimes though for switching my speakers at the last minute if I think they'll work better in a different slot mm-hmm. or if we've had to make adjustments and then people have not liked that. So The speakers haven't liked that or the audience? The speakers haven't okay. liked that. I find that if you meet your audience even moderately halfway in terms of respect and a decent sandwich, they will really forgive things like changing your schedule. We like to talk about tools and you're just talking about logistics and laying down your logistics plan. What tools do you use to do that? Like, do you have like a spreadsheet or to-do list or what? I have many tools. I use spreadsheets for things like budgets and financial planning. I use survey software like Typeform for seeking out feedback for RFP response. I tie a lot of things together with Zapier and Trello boards. So again, things for building your audience. So sometimes staying aware can be easier than you think if you build Twitter lists and then use Zapier to kind of collect those tweets in spreadsheets and say, okay, once a week, I'm going to go review this spreadsheet and actively pay attention to the things I said I was going to pay attention to. I find it really hard to stay on top of Twitter at the moment. I use TweetBot. I love TweetBot. I set up columns. I'm kind of a dork. It's still hard to watch all those things. But I think from the business perspective, for things like sponsorship, you can be listening to different searches or you can put 50 people in a list and then pay attention to what those 50 people are talking to by zapping those tweets to a spreadsheet. I like to do things like that. I like to tie all of our survey stuff to different Trello boards or our RFP submissions. When we do our review processes and we bring in an evaluation team for the talks, they get access to the Trello board and we move talks along from here's our initial submission and here's our first round selection and here's our second round selection and then here's our final, these people made it. For things like venues and getting other people's help in building a travel guide and ultimately building out parts of your website. I like Trello to sort of source. I keep master speaker goal lists. I keep venue boards, things like that all in Trello. We should definitely talk sometime about the tools you use because I'm really interested in how you take advantage of Twitter because Twitter to me has always been a big challenge, either not getting sucked into it, but also like using it to its advantage. I still love Twitter. Again, it's curated, right? Like you control Mm -hmm. in an extent what you see when you use a tool and and by whom you follow. So for me, I I try to use it as a place that builds my awareness from a work perspective, from a conference perspective, but also just from a human perspective. I like to follow a lot of people who are talking about music and art and things I wouldn't have perhaps known about anyway, and then just sort of expand myself as a human. But I think listening to things on Twitter, finding ways to be engaged, and then for me also making sure it's not too exclusively markety that I don't want everything I tweet to be coming out of buffer and seeming like it's corporate scheduled. I think one of the ways Twitter feels the best to people is when there is that spontaneous engagement or that personalization of back and forth. So I like to listen a lot for things like retweeting, but also just to be thinking about who is talking to whom in groups that I should be paying attention to, and then spending a little time on Twitter when you can to actually connect with other people. Yeah, you had mentioned that people know when they're being sold, and I think people have become wise to the hashtags. And so they start seeing one too many, and they will just start scrolling right past those tweets. They want that I'm like a hashtag dork in real life. And so I put hashtags in my notes to people on my Slack and and everything because I just, yeah. (laughs) True. I suppose there's a lot of context that goes with it because there are definitely some that just, you can't not put the hashtag as well. Other tools we didn't talk about too, in the sense of, again, awareness and building your own awareness. So, uh, different Slack communities and being part of different Slack communities and and finding the balance between engagement versus marketing. I don't like to come into Slack communities and heavily market peers, but I will set up my identity within multiple Slack communities as the founder and curator of peers so that maybe if somebody does click on my bio and they're compelled to sort of think, gee, I haven't heard of this. I can click and find out on the website, you know, 
making sure you're trying to put information about yourself out in different ways. I belong to a lot of women in technology Slack groups, both sort of locally targeted in the DC area, but also nationally. So those kinds of Slack groups tend to have channels about conferences, about speaking. There are lots and lots of people now who have decided that speaking, some rightly so, is a great accelerator for their career or a great vantage point from which to share expertise and that that will also help their career. So there's a lot of interest in speaking and people will then reach out to you and want to know more about your event or want to know more about becoming a speaker. I try to volunteer again within communities where people are starting out by offering to review and listen to talks. So if you are someone who is finding their feet as a speaker, I will do a run-through of your talk with you and give you some feedback. I will work on an abstract with you and help you plan an outline for what your talk could look like. Those things, again, probably happen more behind the scenes than they should. I should probably share more of that than I do. Again, sometimes I've, I've struggled with that part of it. The public piece is not always in my nature. Are there any other uh, sorts of surprises that have come up that maybe you couldn't anticipate? You had joked about, you know, when do things go wrong with technology? I thought we had broken my laptop that we were using to present something once because it went black while the presentation was being run off. And I was thinking, I really need my laptop today. (laughs) You know, please don't die on me. Things go wrong. And the way to handle them generally is to try to have a good sense and plan in the beginning for what things look like when they go right, to have had conversations with your venue people about how they handle it when things go wrong. I am a big proponent of our code of conduct and making sure that everybody feels good and safe and welcome at peers. And so I talk about that with my venue. I meet with security teams. I talk to them about the realities of what it will look like if we have to ask someone to leave our event. I have never had to do that, but I take it seriously that we have a conversation regarding security with the people whose job it is to provide security. I think it's really tricky. I don't think anyone has 100% the right plan in place, especially with a small event. So I would say two things happened recently that I didn't expect at my last peers. A very good friend of mine was ill at the conference. And so that's beyond the conference, right? It's outside of the event. But they didn't want to let me know at the time that they weren't feeling well and needed medical help and they sought it on their own. I found out later and wished that that could have been something that I knew about or maybe was able to provide support for in the moment because I really care about this person. So I think that made me realize that while I have a plan for a lot of things with regard to vendors, things like Instacart and Postmates and all the delivery services that our tech industry is building to make everyone's life easier, make throwing events easier. But not having a plan in place for who can step in, who can maybe act as a momentary MC if needed, who is comfortable enough or casual enough to get up on stage and fill a 10-minute gap should something go wrong and take you and a few other key people out of the room for a moment. Thinking about your approach to things as they go wrong, I think I was looking at that from a purely logistical aspect of the event and not necessarily an emotional or other kinds of things going wrong scenario. Yeah, a lot of those are definitely the sorts of things that you don't want people winging. Well, and the thing too is that we like to fool ourselves by thinking we're in control or that we can have a plan for everything. And we absolutely can't. But my approach is to try to think about everything that could possibly go wrong and how I would handle it. Because if you think about 90 things that could go wrong and you come up with a way to handle it, the five things that do go wrong will probably throw you less. Because even if you didn't plan for them, you feel like you have good backup for some things. And so you're just calmer. So before we close out, who do you recommend to follow like on Twitter or books or podcasts or blogs that you'd recommend that helped you get started organizing an event and building a community? That's a good question. 
I don't think I've approached it from the process of, are there key individuals to follow that will help me start a good community? I think sometimes you have to start with the community or the event you're trying to emulate and pay attention to what those people do. So for me, in terms of trying to throw a very human tech event. I've been fairly selective over the years about the kinds of events I go to when I'm making a commitment of time and money to an event and paying attention to either the way those organizers have done things or the way the events themselves are thrown or perhaps what their online communities look like in Slack. Uh, I've attended an event called XOXO in Portland a few times and it's one of my favorites. They have a huge Slack community and their community, they make a ton of contributions and suggestions and they're totally built in. So that is an interesting one. Back in the day, I really enjoyed Brooklyn Beta when that was around. It no longer exists as an event, but I think it has a lot of models of sort of how to approach big picture things that we address in our industries and ways to kind of thrill your audience. And then listening to people and what they say about events. And sometimes you can learn just as much from a not good event as you can from a great one, right? And how not to do things or what kinds of speaker rosters don't feel good to you or perhaps look the way that you wanted them to look, being deliberate. Thank you for sharing that. Kind of like that it wasn't very specific because a lot of people won't necessarily mesh up with a book or a podcast or blog. Like there's, you know, I agree, there's not a one true answer for everyone. Sure. I mean, it's also going to be very, very different if you're throwing like an independent JavaScript conference versus an O'Reilly event, right? Like one thing is huge sponsorship and corporate branding and a ton of team money and time behind it. The other thing is probably what's happening on the nights and weekends for a small team of three people. So I think the audience understands that. And I think as organizers, we have to understand how the approach can be different and what you can be forgiven for and what you can't. And then people find their own way. I've been lucky to be part of a small organizer group on Slack that I've really enjoyed because we all get to commiserate with each other about funny things that go wrong or funny parts of the process. So then you feel good because you think, oh, I'm not the only one (laughs) who maybe isn't getting it right all the time. Everybody else is talking about the same stuff. Yeah, very true. We didn't even get to dig into like having a good support group because there's a lot of stress involved in this on having other people to just validate your feelings and bounce ideas off of. I'll probably think of 10 things the minute we stop. So... (laughs) Over the course of the next few days, I can send some other ideas about resources online. Oh, great. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Jess, for coming on the show. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was really nice meeting you. You too. If people want to reach out to us, we're on Twitter at OK Productive, as well as Instagram and Facebook. I hope everybody has a great Labor Day weekend, and we will talk to you later. Bye.